What's up, everybody? Welcome and welcome back to this episode of Dixon Politics. It has been a long time since we last had a chance to catch up. My name is Samantha, and today is October 25th, I think. How's everyone doing? How are you all? Enjoying the fall? I hope. Maybe. No, today's the 24th. I hallucinated. Anyways, it doesn't matter. I hope that you guys are doing well, and I'm sorry that it has been such a long pause between the last episode and this episode. A big thank you to Anchor FM and Spotify for being really flexible with me as my sponsors. Um, You know, it's tough. And I feel like I've been saying this a lot, especially over the last couple of years. And I do realize that I sound a little bit like a broken record, but it's hard when there's a bunch of just negative, 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 negative shit going on in the world. It can be hard to report on it when you yourself can't empathize, you can't wrap your head around it, you can't understand why the hell it's happening, whether or not you understand the political history or the social history. It's like, you know, what the fuck? So um, I am coming up on, let's see, almost my one year anniversary of being in therapy. So I'm definitely feeling a lot better than I was, but there's still parts of me mentally that I think are delicate. And that's why I just had to step away for a little bit because, uh, I didn't really know how to talk about what was going on in the world um, and be a good journalist while also showing, I mean, it was just, it was a little, and and even now I'm having trouble explaining it, but I'm back. I'm back and I'm feeling all right. And I'm glad that you're here with me. So let's get things started. I'm obviously going to be talking about Midnight's. You guys know that I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan. But I've honestly been feeling a little okay about her lately. Not so much her as a person. I think Taylor Swift is a a terrifically brilliant artist. But I I don't know, some of the like lyrical things and public statements and marketing strategies, I'm really not feeling it. But she did just come out with a new album. So, um, So we will be talking about that. But first talk about what's going on over in the UK. This is really, really exciting. So you know that it was only a few days ago that the Prime Minister was like, all right, bye. Sorry. (laughs) I'm all set. Well, I have a new Prime Minister, and his name is Rishi Sunak, and he is the very first Prime Minister who is Asian. Like, very first British Asian Prime Minister. I think that's really great. So he is a member of the Conservative Party over in the UK. He is a former chancellor, and he's been sort of in the public eye as, like, a frontrunner for this position since, like, 2015, give or take, because that was when he became the Conservative MP for Richmond and Yorkshire. And then... Um, In 2020, he was promoted to chancellor. That was in February 2020. And that was kind of a mess because that's sort of the height of the pandemic. But that is the new prime minister. And of course, we wish him all the best. Um, Not so good news, but I feel honestly, you know, a lot. And again, like I look at my demographics, a lot of us around are around the same age. We're all between the ages of like 25 and 45. And I think that a lot of us have seen definitely our grandparents, if not our parents, 
suffering from what looks a lot like dementia and Alzheimer's. And there are some people who have been able to get a formal diagnosis for their loved ones and their family members. But then there's people like me who are kind of going through the motions and going through the ringer with my parents and like no one seems to be able to diagnose what's going on or give us any clues or any hints. And I do feel like the different medical professionals that my family has been meeting with are kind of just like, oh, it's just old age, old age. It seems like more than that. So there is a new study and it says that one in 10 Americans over the age of 65 have dementia. Now, from what I understand, there's dementia and then there's Alzheimer's and they're a little bit different. And I think that it's should have looked this up but one of them is more so about like oh gosh like where did I put my keys you know like you're finding the keys in the refrigerator like why would the keys be in the refrigerator you are finding you know food that's been like long since expired and it like just didn't register and then there's another diagnosis that's a little bit like more aggressive um here let me just look this up right now difference between Alzheimer's and dementia because I know there's one that's more about like being angry and aggressive and like having like an out-of-body experience um so dementia is a more general this is what it says on Mayo Clinic so dementia is a general term but Alzheimer's disease is is a specific brain disease and it's marked by symptoms of dementia that gradually get worse over time Alzheimer's affects the part of the brain associated with learning. So early symptoms include changes of memory, thinking, and reasoning skills. So I, again, being the age that I am, um, I, I have seen a few of my friends go through a dementia diagnosis with their parents, and it is really grueling for everybody involved and very debilitating. Um, and it can feel very isolating too. But, you know, with this study, it's saying that one in 10 people over the age of 65 have dementia. People who are Black, African American, are more likely to have dementia, according to this study, while people that are of Hispanic descent are less likely to have Alzheimer's. So, now that we know that it is such a common thing, I hope that it's something that people specifically with our age demographic can start to talk about a little more. Because like I said, I've been going through it with my parents and I mentioned it to um, my therapist and she suggested I look up support groups and there are thousands and thousands of people out there that are going through what I'm going through, which is basically, you're grieving the loss of a parent, but the parent is standing right in front of you. So your parent still looks like themselves and they still dress like themselves and they sort of, you know, eat the things they've always eaten. But the way that they behave <laughs> is not something that you recognize. And some of the things that they say are just not opinions or phrases that you recognize as their own. And it's really, really hard. So something to think about for sure. Um, we could also talk about, so I, <laughs> I used to have a pet mouse. Her name was Mrs. Mulberry. She was one of the best pets I had. Something that's even smarter than a mouse, because mice are pretty smart, are rats. And I'm sure you guys know this, but rats are highly intelligent. They're sentient. They are trainable. Um, they're really, really, really smart beings. So rats right now are being armored <laughs> with backpacks 
and they're being trained to find survivors in disaster zones. So these little backpacks have cameras on them and these rats obviously can move really quickly. They're very agile. They can go into really small spaces. So we're talking things like after a bombing or a, a collapse of some sort, a landslide, an avalanche, these rats are being trained to find survivors. So I think that is pretty freaking cool. Um, <laughs> so Gen Z, <laughs> don't we love them? Uh, Gen Z has been surveyed and observed. And <laughs> recently the, the Piper Sandler study, uh, they do it every year. So this year they surveyed 14,500 teens in 47 states to find out what their favorite restaurant is. And I want to see, just take a second to think about it. What do you think is number one? Fucking Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Chick-fil-A is number one. Starbucks is number two. And then, of course, Chipotle is number three. I would put Chipotle at my number one. If I had to pick, like, a restaurant. But, I well, Chipotle or McDonald's. But I don't think McDonald's counts as a restaurant. But anyways... That is what is going on with Gen Z. I, someone else uh, recently put out a post about what the headstones of what the gravestones are going to look like when Gen Z dies. And it was like, ooh, not me dying. <laughs> or like, ooh, it was the old age for me. Oh, my God. I feel like I'm way too old to be talking like that. So anyways, all right. Let's talk a little bit about what's been going on in the entertainment world. I mean, of course... Dancing with the Stars is back on the air, which mm -hmm, I'm sure you know. And uh, this season, mm, great to have Alfonso Rivero there. Love Alfonso Rivero. He is a former Dancing with the Stars champion. He won a few years ago with Whitney Carson, who is still fairly new to being a pro. I think it was like her fourth season or something like that when they won. And they also ended up winning an Emmy together for her choreography to um, that song. It's not unusual to be lit, that one. So he's now back as a co-host with Tyra. And even if I can put to the side the psychotic abuse that she used to put contestants through on Top Model, I don't like Tyra as a host. I feel like I said that last year and I stand by it. I, I don't like her. She's not good at improvising. She's not funny. She's not clever. She can't think on the fly. When, and here's the thing, when the teleprompter gets it wrong, you know, and the, the production person is in her ear, like the showrunner is in her ear saying like, oh no, wait, no, it's not that pairing. It's another pairing, whatever. She gives them a fucking attitude. And I feel like she does that because she's a goddamn executive producer on the show. So she feels that because the show wouldn't be able to go on without her, that she can talk to people however she wants. But bottom line, everyone hates her as a host and I don't really like her either. I remember when Aaron Andrews first started co-hosting the show with Tom Bergeron. I was kind of like, all right, girly, like we get it. You've been on the show before. You've been doing sports journalism forever. Like let's pull it back a little bit. And by the time Aaron was coming around to like her second or third season, she really had gotten into the groove of Dancing with the Stars and what us, the viewers, want to see. Uh, so maybe, ta ta maybe Tyra will get there, but I doubt it. I don't like it. Um, 
I even noticed, it was interesting, in the first episode, I sort of noticed that Alfonso and Tyra were both tripping over themselves a little bit, because here's the thing. Dancing with the Stars used to be on ABC at 8 p.m., and ABC is a prime network. It's now streaming live on Disney+. Plus. So in terms of, like, the streaming and the technology and all that kind of stuff, like, they're doing a great job with the streaming. The The filming is still really good. The lighting is great. The sound is great. Like, you know, the costumes are unbelievable. But I feel like either one of two things happened. Either Tyra and Alfonso sat down and had the absolute piss scared out of them by the Disney execs, or no one talked to them regarding kind of what the what the branding was, what the vibe was, what the verbiage was now that they're on Disney, you know, because Disney has been trying to break out of that box where the Disney brand and the Disney experiences and the Disney films are only for children. They've really tried to kind of broaden it, you know, and they did that when they made the Disney parks. They were trying to appeal to parents and children, but now so many people are choosing not to have children or those children have since grown up. So Disney has had to widen their appeal, especially over the last 10 to 15 years. And like so, you know, now we see that we've got The Simpsons streaming on Disney Plus and we've got all the Marvel Universe now on Disney Plus. And there are definitely parts of Marvel that are not PC. There's swearing, there's, you know, there's provocative behavior, there's sexual innuendos and all this other stuff. So I do feel that Disney as a brand has been trying to um, widen their appeal, but I noticed that Alfonso and Tyra would sort of try to make jokes, you know, sort of like in between, like after the performance, but like in between them leaving the judge's table and going up to talk to Alfonso or whatever, like you just sort of felt like they were tripping over their words and tripping over their jokes a little bit. And they would say something that would sound sort of suggestive or heteronormative or whatever. And they would like, try to retract. And so I think this season more than anything from a marketing standpoint and from a production standpoint is really more of a learning curve than anything. In terms of the pros and the people that have been on the show, um, I don't love the cast, but I don't hate them. I think that um, Daniel Durant, who just won um, an Oscar for his performance in CODA. He is paired with a new pro named Britt, and I really, really like the work that they've been doing together, not only because Daniel is deaf, and so his teaching requires an extra couple layers of um, just, you know, teamwork and clarity and things like that that they need to workshop out. But I think that they're keeping their numbers really interesting. So that's really cool. Then we've got Emma Slater, who's back. Of course, we love Emma. And she is dancing with Trevor Donovan, who you guys probably know from um, 90210. And he's been in, I think, a couple like Hallmark movies and things like that. He and Emma are doing really well together. Um, He, I guess, had like a huge phobia of dance. And now he's overcoming his phobia. And they're really really interesting. I don't love Emma's choreography when she does contemporary numbers. I think that there was one number that she did with Hayes Greer from 2019 or 20, no, it was like 2017 or something like that. And they did a a contemporary number to Stitches by Shawn Mendes. That choreography was great. But since then, I've watched Emma do a couple contemporary pieces, and I don't love them. You know, contemporary 
like I've said before, is so much about that tension and that give and take. And it's, it's the straightening of the, it's, it's like the straightening staccato of the entire body and then just letting go right in your core. And um, in order for contemporary as a, a partnered piece, in order for it to look really good, you both need to have a level of flexibility, strength, and athleticism overall. And they both have that, but something about the way that number was, it just didn't quite like hit me in the heart. So I'm interested to see where they go. I'm not really sure how far they can take it though, to be perfectly honest with you. Then of course, we've got the D'Amelios. We have Heidi D'Amelio and Charlie D'Amelio. And we know the D'Amelios because they have their own show on Hulu and Charlie's huge on TikTok and everywhere else. Um, I'm really surprised that I'm rooting for Heidi as much as I am. I think being a mother has given me this giant dump truck load worth of empathy for other mothers. And to see a woman who was once a model, who was once a dancer, but who hasn't done either in years because she gave it all up to raise her family in the lap of comfort and luxury, but still to raise a family I can completely relate with that, you know? I mean, there's a reason I still do this podcast. Like, I, I'm i really, really lucky uh, that my husband has the kind of job security that he does um, because it means that if I can't work or if I just, I don't want to work or like whatever, and I know that sounds so awful, um, I don't always have to. But it doesn't mean that I haven't been struggling big time, you know, and my my biggest demon is myself and and my mind so now that i've gotten that cleared up and and i'm sort of standing in in the rubble of of my own doing which is motherhood it's still really hard you know being a mom being a homemaker is really really hard and especially when you are an ambitious person like me and like heidi you know it can be hard to kind of take a back seat and just be there to support your kids and help them shine because you do tend to forget about yourself. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're not feeling so great. And you're like, oh my God, it's because I haven't made myself a healthy meal in a couple of weeks. And I haven't taken time to just, you know, take a half an hour to read a book. So I'm rooting for Heidi. Heidi's part paired with Artem uh, Chikmensev, who competed a few years ago with Nikki Bella. They have since gotten married and started a family together. And I really love seeing the way that Artem is growing as a choreographer. And I was really surprised because if you look back at the history of Dancing with the Stars, every single time someone did a routine to a song from Mary Poppins, it was a disaster. And I'm pretty sure that if they didn't end up going home that night, they went home going, they ended up going home very shortly thereafter. However, Heidi and Artem did a number to, um, a Mary Poppins song, and it was really, really terrific. Charlie, her daughter, has been paired with Mark Ballas, and you guys know how I feel about Mark. I think that he is one of the most noteworthy, spectacular, deserving professional dancers and choreographers and artistic directors of our time, but Mark sometimes has a little bit of a hard time playing nice with Dancing with the Stars. He has a tendency to choreograph pieces that will sit well in his personal professional repertoire, but don't really fit in with what you're looking for in the show. However, I think Mark has done a really, really great job. And, you know, to be unfair, that's sort of what you're able to do when you're paired with uh, a celebrity that can already dance. 
Charlie did contemporary dancing for I think 12 or 13 years. So, I mean, she's a dancer and contemporary, I think is one of the most difficult categories of dance because it's so, not only is it so precise and it requires you to be unbelievably strong and flexible, but it also demands vulnerability. You know, ballroom dance with a lot of it, you know, not so much unless you're doing like, maybe like a rumba or something like that. But, uh, but with, if you look at tap, if you look at ballet, you look at jazz, you look at all those different categories, contemporary is really the one that demands that you be completely honest with your movements, with your dancing, with your facial expressions, your breath work, everything, because if you're not, the audience is going to see it and they're not going to root for you. So Charlie, of course, is doing really, really well. I think that the amount of media training that that young woman has gone through has really paid off because she's very likable. She's very relatable. She's, even though she suffers from anxiety, which she has talked about openly on multiple occasions, I think that she, um, she just finds a way to, to be brave and to say something that is relatable, tasteful, appropriate, um, but also uniquely her. So I'm really, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised by the two of them. So we'll see how the rest of the competition goes. There's also Wayne Brady, who we all love Wayne Brady. He's best known for his work on Whose Line Is It Anyway. And even though he's got great rhythm and he can dance, he's not a dancer, but he's paired with Whitney. And Whitney's choreography is always really great. So they're doing fabulously in the show. There's also Jordan Sparks, Can't Stand Her, Jesse James Decker, um, like, definitely like I'm, I feel them because they're fellow moms, but like you guys are not good at dancing and they're not compelling or entertaining to watch. So they could go home for me. That's just my opinion, but we'll see as the Monday nights trot on, we will see. So now <clears throat> let's talk about midnights. Taylor Swift's marketing since the reputation era has definitely been a, something to behold. And I don't necessarily mean that as a diss, but I also am not quite sure it's a compliment either. So let me explain. Taylor Swift, her entire career, you know, it's just, it's growing, it's bigger and bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden she's having these really public relationships and really public breakups and these really public feuds with other huge artists like Kanye West and Katy Perry. And then, it all kind of came to a head when um, when she had to do, uh, when she came out with Reputation. So she came out with 1989, and that was an album that was very, like, New York City, New England-centric. It was pop. I mean, I love 1989. It's probably one of my favorite albums, if not my favorite album. But then a bunch of shit went down, and... Uh, go through like a sexual assault case because um, there was a radio DJ out in Colorado that groped her. Oh, it was awful. And um, she originally was signed with a small label called Big Machine Records. And she had expressed to them repeatedly time and time again over the, I think they were together for like 10 years, that she wanted to buy her catalog of music. And they kept telling her, no, no, sorry, you can't do that. So then she was like, well, if you guys aren't going to allow me to own my art, like I'm leaving. So when she left them, she then found out that the owner, Scott Borchetta, 
was selling her entire catalog to Scooter Braun. And if you guys don't know who Scooter Braun is, he is the absolute scum of the earth. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a Taylor Swift fan. He is a talent agent, and he's probably best known for working with Justin Bieber. He also represented Ariana Grande, Demi Lovato, Tori Kelly, um, Carly Rae Jepsen, a lot of the sort of like younger, you know, hey, I went viral on, you know, whatever, and, and now I, I'm going to be famous. He is notorious for overworking and overbooking his clients and completely neglecting their personal needs, their mental health needs, their physical needs, and really just sort of like leaving them out to dry. So not only does he not support them, but the teams that he puts together to manage their careers in every aspect, they just, they fail them. I mean, look, like, look at what's happened to Justin Bieber. Look at what, look at what has happened to Demi Lovato. Those are two really good examples of people who were perhaps already predisposed for, you know, succumbing to um, their mental health challenges and who were already at risk for, you know, getting into addiction and things like that. And both of them multiple times have just gone off the rails and Scooter has not been there to, to, to help them at all. So unfortunately she had already kind of gotten into a scuffle with him. And then when Taylor found out that Scooter was the one for hundreds of millions of dollars that was buying her entire catalog, she went into hiding. We didn't see her in in real life. We didn't see her for an entire year. And she said in her documentary for Miss Americana, she thought that that's what people wanted. I mean, she was just in a really bad state of mind and she was just, she was fucking done with all the feuds and she was done. So when she did finally come back, she came back with a new attitude where there would be no explanation. There would only be reputation. So she came out with her reputation album and then she went on a huge reputation stadium tour, which broke records and made bazillions of dollars, was hugely successful, was then documented on Netflix. But what you noticed was that you never again really saw much of a glimpse into Taylor's personal life. You really had to fit the pieces together from what you would see in the very, very few scarce art, um, interviews she would do. And then also you would have to listen to her music to really figure out what was going on. So Reputation was a really great album. It ended up not winning a ton of awards and I don't think it won um, album of the year for the Grammys and that really messed with her. So she then decided, okay, I'm gonna do another album and she came out with Lover. The marketing around Lover was so gay. And I'm not using that as an insult. I, you, got, you guys know me. I don't talk like that. It was just gay. It was gay pride all the way. It was rainbows. It was sparkles. It was the lesbian pride flag. It was the bisexual pride flag. There were so many times where she not only tried to show that she was an ally, but now as we get further down the line, People were suspecting with this Midnight's album that Taylor was going to come out. There are some people that think she is either a lesbian or there are some people that think that she is bisexual. So before I get into all that, let me backtrack a little bit. Taylor comes out with Lover. Then the pandemic hits 
and she comes out with Folklore and Evermore, which were definitely like folk rock songs. I love those two albums. When Evermore first came out, I had been listening to Folklore on repeat for months. I didn't love Evermore, but now that I've gone through more stuff and we're further into the pandemic and we're sort of starting to see a little bit of the light at the end of the tunnel. Now I listen to Evermore and I really, really like it. Um, and so with the Reputation album, a lot of the songs were either about her feud with Kanye West, they were, or they were about her boyfriend, Joel Alwyn, who she had been with at that point for, I think, almost three years. And no one ever saw them together. They were pictured together only a couple of times for like public events and a couple paparazzi shots. But other than that, we don't really know anything about their relationship other than the fact that we now know that they write music together sometimes and that they've been together for six years. So people were listening to that album. And they're like, great. All the songs are about Joe Album. We're totally confident with that assumption. Then Evermore and Folklore came out. And a group of people who have dubbed themselves Gaylers, G-A-Y-L-O-R-S, really started to come out of the woodworks on social media, so much so that Rolling Stone was the first to cover the Gaylers and the whole Taylor Swift being gay theory. And now a bunch of other outlets have sort of jumped on that bandwagon. And they, these people are saying, listen, this is not about Joe Alwyn. That song is about her relationship with Diana Agron from Glee. And that song and that song and that song and that song are about her relationship that crashed, burned, and blew up in her face between her and Carly Kloss, the supermodel. So then they were coming up with all this evidence, tweets and old Instagram posts that have since been deleted and tweets that have since been deleted and paparazzi photos and videos and all these different things that they have now compiled to prove that Taylor Swift is not heterosexual. Now, the people that are on the far end of the spectrum think that Taylor Swift is 100% gay, that her relationship with Joe is nothing more than a PR stunt, something to kind of, you know, just keep people quiet and whatever. Then there's people in the middle who are like, you know what, I think that she's bisexual and I'm sure that she is with Joe and she loves him very much, but that doesn't take away from the fact that she has had prior relationships, flings, dalliances, flirtations with women. And she was trying to use the Lover album and the Lover era, because each of Taylor's um, albums are referred to as eras. Each comes with their own marketing, their own aesthetic, everything, their own messaging. They think that she was trying to use the Lover era to come out of the closet. But when her catalog was sold and Trump was elected and everything else, she just was like, nope, I can't do it. Now is not the time, et cetera. And then you have people, you know, way on the other end of the spectrum that are like, mm, okay, well, I think, yeah, like maybe, maybe she's had crushes, like maybe she's hooked up with girls, who knows, but like, let's just focus on the relationship that she's in now. And let's just celebrate that. And, you know, if and when Taylor wants to share her, her preferences with us or whatever, we're here to listen. So there's a really big spectrum with the whole Gaylor community. Then you have the Hetlers, H E T. L-O-R-S, heterosexual, he heterosexual Taylor Swift fans that are, are just like, nope, Taylor's not gay, she's straight, you guys are reaching, you guys are such losers, whatever. Unfortunately, what all of the speculation has done is it's really divided the fan base 
And I think that from an analytics standpoint and a PR standpoint, Taylor and her team are sitting back and they're just counting the numbers and they're watching what happens. But for the people in her fandom that are kind of middle of the road, like myself, I just think it kind of sucks. Cause like, no matter what, it's not any of our business. And of course, like Taylor Swift loves to sleuth. She's admitted that she leaves us Easter eggs. She leaves us clues and interviews, outfits, paparazzi shots, uh, social media, other albums. She has said multiple times that she plans things three years in advance. So, you know, yeah, there, there is that side of us that, oh, you know, oh, maybe this or maybe that, or, ooh, that's, I never saw that picture. Ooh, I never heard that theory. But I think the middle of the road people are kind of like, hey, you know, this is interesting. It's entertaining for sure. But at the end of the day, it's none of our business. And as her fans, we just hope that she continues to find the ability to be creative and that she'll be kind enough to share it with us. That's kind of where I'm at. So if you want me to, I can do a bit more of a deep dive on her alleged relationships, first with her fiddle player from her original band when she was up and coming, then with Diana Agron from uh, Glee, and then finally her relationship with Carly Kloss, which is probably the most well-documented one. What I can say is once upon another life, when I was in the city and I had that kind of job and that kind of life, I, I've i met Taylor once for like a hot chocolate second because um, I had to stop by her house really quickly on behalf of um, a major network that was sending her something. And First of all, like impeccable taste for interior design, number one. Number two, really, really nice person. Obviously, she knew that I was coming quick in and out, so she wasn't like startled by my presence. Um, she absolutely could have like hid upstairs. Like she could have done a million different things, but she chose to just like stand there in her kitchen because she was in the middle of cooking and baking. Um, and when I was there, Carly was there. I didn't catch any sort of like sexual tension, romantic vibes from them. The only thing that I felt was that they were really good friends and that they were comfortable with each other. Now you could say that about me and my husband. You could say that about me and my best friend, Abby uh, or Paige or Christine. Like it doesn't mean that we're in love. It just means that, you know, we, we've got a great strong friendship. So I, you know, I don't really know what to say about any of that regarding whether or not it's true. Um, but you know, uh, it's, I guess, a, a somewhat interesting theory. People seem to think that, and like I said, I can do a bigger deep dive, but the point is, it started off that they were just really, really good friends. They did a whole Vogue spread together. They did uh, videos for Vogue.com to be put up on YouTube. They were pretty much inseparable. And then Carly started dating... Jared Kushner's brother. Yeah, like Jared Kushner, like Donald Trump's like son-in-law. And then she signed with Scooter Braun. So that was definitely two major conflicts of interest. Not saying that like being a Kushner in general automatically means that you're a major Trump supporter and that you are, you know, this, that, and the other. Everything that Trump supporters have been painted to be racist, bigoted, you know, homophobic, everything phobic, right? Unless it's in the Bible or like on Pinterest, they don't want it, right? Um, but there are some rumblings that Carly somehow helped Scooter Braun, her new manager, to acquire Taylor's catalog of music. 
it's all very unclear, but the theories are out there. If you go on TikTok, especially, um, that's where a lot of people will talk about it. So if you just look up hashtag Gaylor, like millions of videos will pop up. So I'll let you, I'll let you do that on your own time. Let's just talk about the album. Um, the marketing around this album was definitely sensational. And when I say sensational, I don't mean that it was terrific, but what I mean was that it was sensationalized. I mean, even my mother knew that Taylor Swift was coming out with a new album and my mother sometimes doesn't even know like what month it is. So in terms of awareness and everything, they definitely got their name out there. A lot of people have a problem with the way this whole thing was rolled out. Here we are in another recession and it fucking blows and people are feeling very financially pinched. And here comes Taylor Swift releasing four identical albums, but you have to buy all four of them because they all have different colors and different covers so that you can put them together on a wall and it turns into a clock because on the backside, there's numbers like the face of a clock. Then you've got Taylor Swift saying like, oh, like this is a Target exclusive, or no, like, hi, like this is exclusive to my website. It's only available for 72 hours, 48 hours, wall supplies last, whatever. And then like a week and a half later, it's available at Walmart and Target. So a lot of people were kind of like, okay, like girly, we love you, but we don't have this kind of money to be spending. Now on top of that, the merchandise, like all this, the clothing and stuff like that, Definitely Stranger Things vibes, definitely 70s vibes. People don't love it. I mean, there's some people that really, really love it because they're totally into that. Um, but there's a lot of people that are kind of like, I can't wear this. Like, it's not like I love you, but like, this doesn't fit into my wardrobe. But like, okay, I guess I'll buy like a t shirt or something like that. So, like, already you've kind of got people that are feeling a little bit disenchanted then you've got this whole sensation around oh is this going to be the album where she finally comes out is this because it was really supposed to be lover but then you know we were missing a whole album after lover called karma and then we got folklore and evermore but like maybe this is the one where she's going to come out so she starts doing these midnight's mayhem with me posts uh the like few weeks leading up to the album release where she uh shared the names of the tracks and people were trying to decode those like oh did you see what she was wearing did you see how she was holding her fingers she's doing a countdown we're gonna get a single we're gonna get whatever and basically like the majority of things that people thought were going to happen didn't end up happening and the easter eggs that were planted for this album and for this era were very obvious and if we had just looked at them and taken them for what they were we would have gotten it we didn't need to like twist them and bend them we didn't need to be learning morse code and all this other crazy shit people were doing so the other night midnights did indeed drop at midnight and then three hours later the midnights 3 a.m edition came out that had an additional seven songs here's what i'll say it's pop rock which I love, you know, give me, give me a bass line, a synth and some sassy lyrics. And I mean, I'm, I'm already like sweating and drooling. I think that if you've been tracking Taylor's career and you've been tracking what you can see of her personal life, this album is going to be really satisfying to you because you're going to be able to pick out who each song is about. 
Now, the whole premise behind Midnight's is these are songs that she wrote about the times where she was just up in the middle of the goddamn night. Um, she couldn't sleep. She's pacing the floors. She's worrying about things. She's regretting things. She's angry about things, whatever. So if you listen to this album and you've listened to the entire catalog of Taylor's, you will be able to say, oh, this song is a callback to that song. And this song goes with that song. And holy shit, she sampled herself in this song from this song from her other album. I think that it will be really satisfying to people that fall into that category. I don't think that it will be for anybody else. I'm trying to like take myself out of the box and just listen to the songs for what they are. And they're good. They're not, some of them are not great. But interestingly, the one that seems to be doing the best is a song called Bigger Than the Whole Sky. Now, this is a song that was released on her Midnight's album, 3AM Edition. And it is undeniably a song about losing a child. It's a song about either having a miscarriage or something, you know, um, or, or having to have um, a, an operation to retrieve a, an unviable fetus. There is no other way to slice that. And it has been at the top of the charts for days now. And the internet is on fire talking about it. Now, as someone who has suffered from the loss of a child, this song was so healing for me because even I, I could never put into words what that feels like. So let me read you, let me read you the lyrics. No words appear before me in the aftermath. Salt streams out of my eyes and into my ears. Every single thing I touch becomes sick with sadness because it's all over now, out to sea. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. You were bigger than the whole sky. You were more than just a short time. And I've got a lot to pine about. I've got a lot to live without. I'm never going to meet what could have been, would have been, what should have been you. How, and, and do, I don't know if you heard that, but there is just a clap of thunder. Do you, did you hear that? Um, did some bird flap its wings over in Asia? Did some force take you because I didn't pray? Every single thing to come has turned into ashes because it's all over now. It's not meant to be. So I'll say words I don't believe. And then it goes into the chorus again. There, there are some people that say that the song reminds them of going through childhood trauma and how because of the trauma they went through as a child, they had to say goodbye to their childhood and to their innocence and to their peace of mind and the security that they should have felt within their home, within their bedrooms and saying, saying goodbye and trying to heal that inner child. I could definitely see that too. However, this to me is a callback is a callback to a song called Hoax that's also by Taylor Swift. And the song Hoax was on, um, I think it was her, gosh, was it her folklore album? I think. Um, so some people, okay, I'll read you the lyrics. Some people think this song is about her losing 
her catalog of music? I think it could be about a few things, but let me read this to you. My only one, my smoking gun, my eclipse sun, this has broken me down, my twisted knife, my sleepless night, my windless flight, this has frozen my ground. Stood on the cliffside screaming, give me a reason. Your faithless love's the only hopes I believe in. Don't want no other shade of blue but you. No other sadness in the world would do. My best laid plan, your sleight of hand, my barren land, I am ash from your fire. And then stood on the cliffside, screaming, give me a reason, once again. And then we go into, you know, I left a part of me back in New York. You know the hero died, so what's the movie for? You knew it still hurts underneath my scars from when they pulled me apart. You knew the password, so I let you in the door. You knew you won, so what's the point of keeping score? You knew it still hurts underneath my scars from when they pulled me apart. But what you did was just as dark. Darling, this was just as hard as when they pulled me apart. My only one, my kingdom come undone, my broken drum, you have beaten my heart. Don't want no other shade of blue but you. No other sadness in the world would do. Now, I usually don't like to um, talk about or sensationalize another woman's loss in any capacity or another person's loss in any capacity, particularly when it comes to losing a child. What I think, though, if I look at this just from knowing what we know about what Taylor Swift has gone through, it sounds to me like she is mourning the loss of her catalog of music. She's mourning the loss of a child who was a boy. And she's also mourning the loss of her friendship with Carly Kloss. I mean, they went from being absolutely inseparable, posting about each other, taking trips to just nothing. I mean, their friendship just vanished overnight. And um, seemingly, you know, that's that's how it looked to to the public, to us, and to the people that were watching. So I think that that song is is about all three of those things. I remember that it wasn't until maybe the 10th time I listened to that song. And I remember I was in the car. My husband and I were in the car with the baby. And we were driving around Vermont. And I just, like a light bulb went off in my head. And I said, oh, my God she's talking about a miscarriage. And I rewound it and we listened again. And my husband was like, yeah, but it also sounds like this or that. So I think that by Taylor Swift putting out Bigger Than the Whole Sky, I think that was her way of confirming that part of hoax was talking about the loss of a child. And um, so that's, that's the song, Bigger Than the Whole Sky, that's been on top of the charts. In terms of the other songs, and I'll read off the whole track list to you, and this is just um, what's available on iTunes. There's other versions that are, or there's other songs and other versions that are available through um, Target exclusives and things like that. Um, so we have Lavender Haze, Maroon, Antihero, Snow on the Beach featuring Lana Del Rey, You're on Your Own Kid, Midnight Rain, Question, Vigilante Shit, Bejeweled, Labyrinth, Karma, Sweet Nothing. Then we get into, then Mastermind. And then the bonus tracks on the 3 a.m. were The Great War, Bigger Than the Whole Sky, Paris, High Infidelity, Glitch, Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda, and Dear Reader. Um, 
I think that more than anything, this album is Taylor Swift's way of putting it behind her. I think that this is her way of saying goodbye, saying goodbye to the past versions of herself, saying goodbye to the past relationships and friendships and eras and saying goodbye to the things that have tortured her and haunted her for the majority of her teenage and adult life and turning over a new chapter. So what do I think is next? Um, I think that we'll probably get another album not too long from now. I think that she's still probably a little ways away from touring with COVID being what it is. And some venues are like, oh, you have to have your vaccine card and you have to get tested on site. And other people are like, oh, you know, you have to wear a mask, but it's okay if you're not vaccinated. You know, there's just too much going on right now that people can't uh, find a way to become united regarding how they want to handle COVID. And I think that's fine because COVID changes seemingly on a, an hourly basis. So I think we'll probably get another album. I think that um, in future, I think that she'll be writing more for just uh, sort of like what she did with Folklore and Evermore. And of course, the Gaylers will say that Folklore and Evermore were all about fucking Carly Kloss and how she's heartbroken about Carly Kloss. I'm, I'm not so convinced, but what I loved about those two albums were just the lyricism. And it wasn't about taking a word and, and twisting its meaning or anything like that. It was just, you know, if I were a brilliant poet, who experienced a wide range of deep felt emotions, both joyful, sad, and otherwise. And I had a dictionary in my head. How would I put all of that together? I think that her new work is going to focus more on the human experience and just what it means to, to be alive, what it means to experience all the things that life is all about. So I don't think we'll hear too much about these past lessons that she's learned or these past relationships. I think we're done talking about John Mayer and Jake Gyllenhaal and Taylor Lautner and Tom Hiddleston and Calvin Harris and Harry Styles and Connor Kennedy, all these guys that she dated in the past. I think we're done hearing allegedly about Carly Kloss and allegedly about Diana Abram. Like, I think we're done. I think that we're going to be turning over a new leaf, which is why I bought a couple of sweatshirts, one for me, one for the little one. I also got um, the bracelet, one for me, one for the little one. And I never buy merch. Like I'm just, I'm not, you know, I love certain artists and certain bands, but I've never really bought merch because it just didn't make sense. But <clears throat> Taylor Swift and and her music and her her artwork have somehow managed to grow up with me. And a lot of the things that she has gone through are things that on either a complete level or on some level are things that I can relate to. And so through her music, I have felt very heard and I have felt very understood in a world, in a life experience, in a body, in a group of people where I don't always feel heard or understood. I mean, I've always felt like such an outsider looking in. And uh, yeah, so out of all these tracks, I really like Lavender Haze. I like, hmm. I like Antihero. I do like Maroon. 
I like bigger than the whole sky. And those are really the only ones that are standing out to me. Karma is fun to listen to. Um, but then you get ones and like question is okay, but like bejeweled and labyrinth. I'm kind of like, and like, no offense, but like sweet nothing, which is what she wrote with her boyfriend. I'm kind of like, mm, okay, but listen, it's sonically cohesive. You can listen to it the whole way through. If you've got the time, there's no skips, but there are definitely going to be favorites. So here's what I would recommend. If you're interested, go and listen to it on Spotify. Stream it on Spotify and just see how you feel. I think that for anyone who has been so totally in love with someone that didn't love you back, or for anyone who's been so in love with someone that loves you the same way that you do and you can't believe it, I think if you have anxiety, if you have ever felt depressed, if you have felt really sure of yourself one minute and then in the in the matter of moments you suddenly don't feel so sure anymore you know for anyone who has gone through that i think you'll really enjoy this album and i think that a lot of what it is will will make you feel very heard um but for people who haven't followed taylor's career for people who are looking for something that is a little bit more um maybe prolific a little bit more um I, I don't want to say thought-provoking, but maybe like thought-provoking in an inspirational way uh, or, you know, in a like, in a way where it would spark discussion. I don't think this album is for you. Kind of like when Taylor made that speech at NYU when she got her honorary doctorate, you know, in my eyes, Taylor can do no wrong, but I didn't love that speech. I really didn't. Um, and it clearly passed through like dozens of people in order to get cleared so that she could, so that she could give the speech. I, I didn't love it. I didn't feel connected to it. I felt sort of like, um, it, it's, she has a lyric from her new single, her lead single, Antihero, that says, um, like, I feel like everyone's a sexy baby and I'm the monster on the hill. That that speech at NYU felt very much like she was the monster on the hill. And I just didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't appreciate it. Happy for you, you know, very happy for her, but it wasn't, it wasn't for me. So that's what we have going on in the world, guys. I can't thank you enough for sticking with me and sticking by me. It's really, really great to have you guys here again. And, and, uh, Hopefully I'll be able to kind of pull it together a little bit more. You know, I, I, this year has sort of been all over the map and I think the previous year was as well. So I've got a lot of thinking to do in terms of where I want to go with this show, but I know that the show will go on. I'm not going anywhere. I'm just, I think I'm trying to settle into when I started this, I really wanted to talk about politics and sex and pop culture. And I feel like I've been, shying away from current events and politics and leaning heavily on pop culture because shit has just been so down in the dumps over the last few years that it's been hard for me to like, I didn't want to pile on basically to you guys. Um, so I think I just need to come to terms with the fact that this show is going to ebb and flow and it's ebbed and flowed forever and ever. And you guys are still here. So I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. But anyways, Thank you guys so much for tuning in. If I don't have a chance to talk to you beforehand, have a really fun and safe Halloween. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving for those of you who are here in the U.S., as well as celebrating um, Indigenous peoples, because yes, Thanksgiving, it's about seeing family, but unfortunately for a large population here in the U.S., 
it's a time of mourning. So I hope that everyone will take very good care throughout the next couple of holidays that we have coming up. And I'm looking forward to catching up with you again soon. So again, thank you, Spotify. And thank you, Anchor FM, for being flexible with me from a creative and advertising sponsorship, whatever standpoint. I appreciate it. And of course, to you guys, the listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for being here. I'm sending you all the best. I think about you guys all the time. And I can't wait to speak with you again soon. From Whatever You Say Productions, my name is Samantha. I'll catch you later. Bye-bye.